Welcome everybody to the next episode of Red Wolf Talk. I am so excited to be back doing another podcast. So grateful that you're turning in, tuning in for the first time or maybe for the second time. I'm excited, really excited about some of the upcoming episodes that we have planned. My name is Kim Wheeler and I'll be your host. I'm recording this podcast a couple days after July 4th. I love July 4th for a lot of reasons, but what I hate is that this holiday fell on a Tuesday. Don't you hate it when a holiday falls in the middle of the week? I think all holidays should be on Monday and Friday. That way, everybody will get an extra long weekend. As I mentioned, I love 4th of July. I am a card-carrying geek about our country's early history. And I, as I read and I learn about our early history, I continue to be amazed at how our founders came together, so many of them with diverse opinions, and put together a roadmap for our country. As I've mentioned before, I've been in this job for 18 years, and when I think about what I'd like to see for the future, I'd like to see what our founding fathers did I'd like to see that translated into today and those people that either are against wolves or wolf advocates that they could somehow find a way to sit down and work together. And when it comes to the red wolf, come together and try to find a way that could secure a future for the red wolf. I mean, I definitely see improvement, but I absolutely hope for more. So today's fun fact, remember I promised I'd give you a fun fact every time I did an episode. So here you go. Did you know that it's impossible to hum while holding your nose? Go ahead, try it. I did. It's funny how the human body sort of put things in the way to be able to do one thing or another, but I thought that was kind of interesting, something I never thought about before. So in this episode, I will introduce you to the early history of the Red Wolf and the people who started the journey to recover it. Sit back, get something to drink, and enjoy. So when I thought about where do I begin, I thought, well, the beginning is the obvious place to start. So I've done some research and I was able to find historical records from Terrell County that were dated February 5th, 1768. And this record shows that bounties were paid for wolf scalps. This was an important find because one of the things, one of the questions I get a lot is how do you know that wolves were here in Northeastern North Carolina? So this historical record gives me something to show people and it solidifies the fact that red wolves were indeed here in North Carolina and specifically in northeastern North Carolina. In the late 1700s, naturalist Will Bartram traveled throughout the southeastern United States. It was during these travels in 1791 that he described the wolf he encountered in Florida and that wolf was the Red Wolf. Sixty years later, in 1851, there were researchers Audubon and Bachman 
that concluded that the Florida wolf was indeed different than the wolf living in the rest of North America. This led to the first recognition in 1905 that the red wolf was a distinct species, Canis rufus by Bailey. There was a lack of real understanding about the natural history of the red wolf until the later part of the 20th century. This lack of interest to study the red wolf before the 1960s left the red wolf critically endangered. And we're so grateful that there were people that cared enough to notice what was happening with the red wolves and get involved. In the late 1960s to 1970s, efforts were focused on determining the red wolf status in the wild and identifying individuals to be placed in a captive breeding program. The action of placing wolves in a captive breeding program had never been done before. Imagine that. Think about that. Here there were early pioneers that knew the red wolf was endangered. It was critical. And how, how do we ensure the survival? And there's one of these pioneers that just knew, and I'll tell you a little bit about him in a minute, that the way to do it was to put them into a captive breeding program and then look at a path forward for survival for the red wolf. So what happened to the red wolf? Their loss of habitat in the wild was the result of many factors. We've all heard about human persecution of wild canids, but also a loss of habitat in the southeastern United States that forced the last remaining wolves to marginal habitat in Texas and Louisiana. The red wolf was listed as endangered in 1967 under the provision of the Endangered Species Preservation Act and in 1973 as the Endangered Species Act became federal law. It was during this time that the first red wolf recovery plan is completed and implementation begins. This plan would be monumental as it was the first time the recovery of a top predator would be attempted. There was no playbook, there was no roadmap. Again, let me say that. There was no playback, playbook or roadmap. That meant these early trappers and researchers had to figure this out as they went along. That is a daunting thought to me. I mean, they literally had the survival of the red wolf in their hands. And I don't know about you, but I am eternally grateful for their confidence and diligence to the process of recovery. As I mentioned, these early field biologists and researchers, they were a dedicated group of individuals. And as I've said before, I think I'm certain that without them, there would not have been red wolves on the landscape today. So who were these early pioneers? There's a number of them whose names stand out and whose dedication to the red wolf, again, made it possible for this animal to survive. One of them was Roy McBride. He was a trapper. Curtis Carley, also a trapper. Glenn Riley, a trapper. And Ron Nowak, who is a researcher. 
I have never had the opportunity to meet any of these individuals. Unfortunately, the only one um, still alive is Ron Noak. Uh, Glenn Riley recently passed away, but I would just love to have met these individuals and had the opportunity to talk to them. The initial objective of the recovery plan was to document the distribution and abundance of red wolves in Texas and Louisiana. Dedicated field work revealed that free-ranging red wolves were rare, while coyotes were common. The service concluded that the red wolf could be recovered only through captive breeding and reintroduction. Curtis Carley believed strongly that captive breeding was the first step for the recovery of the red wolf. So hats off to Curtis Carley for his insight into knowing what needed to be done, what would that first step be. As I mentioned, I've never had the honor to meet any of them, but what I would give to have had the opportunity to sit down and hear their stories about those early days. What was it like? What was it, how is it possible when you're trying to figure out how to restore an animal, but there's no book to go to. You can't reach on the shelf and pick up the book that says how to recover a wolf, how to recover a top predator, step one. I mean, I just, I, I imagine that as, as many questions and answers ran through their mind as anything else. And I would love to know where their field books are, their field notebooks. Some of them are probably gone, maybe in a box somewhere in a, in a warehouse. But boy, I would love to read their notes. So I would put out there, if there's the family of Roy McBride, Curtis Carley, Glenn Riley, if you're out there and you have their field books, I would love the opportunity to take a look at them. I will handle them with care. I will wear white gloves and certainly return them to you in the shape that I receive them. But again, if anybody out there knows any family of those individuals, I'd love for you to reach out and I'd love to be able to take a look at those. The captive breeding program was established in November 1973 at what was called then Point Defiance Zoological Gardens located in Tacoma, Washington. Um, I know when I first heard that, I thought about, okay, we got Texas and Louisiana, wolves in Texas and Louisiana, but a facility all the way in Washington State was interested seems like a great distance. But then I realized, you know, the distance really didn't matter. Point Defiant Zoo was so eager to be part of this captive breeding program, and they remain one of the long, the largest safe facilities to house red wolves. Um, under human care even today and they continue to be a leader in the care and the study of red wolves. As the captive program progressed there were 400 animals, 400 canids captured from southwestern Louisiana and southeastern Texas from 1973 to 1980. As you'd expect these animals were captured to supply animals for the breeding program. But of the 400 captured, 43 were believed to be red wolves and sent to Point Defiance. Now at this time, this was a time frame that was long before genetic testing, before genetic testing became the new and important field that, it's, that it has become today. So how did those 
early researchers and pioneers know which canids were red wolves. So they had to come up with a criteria to distinguish red wolves from coyotes and hybrid. So some of that criteria were body measurements. They looked at the ear size, the feet, the body size, the muzzle length. They also did vocalization analysis. For any of you that's heard a wolf, whether it's a gray or a red and a coyote, howl, you know that it's a very different sound. So they used that information to determine and locate what they hoped were red wolves. They also did skull x-rays. You know, as I mentioned, I can't even imagine how daunting of a task it was to measure all of those 400 animals. And I know it did not happen all at one time, but still, here you are making decisions for the future of the red wolf. Just amazing to me. So for many of you, I would like to think most of you have probably seen a red wolf, whether you've had the opportunity to go to a zoo or nature center or have come to Northeastern North Carolina and seen one in the wild that you know what a red wolf looks like. But for anybody that doesn't, um, the red wolf is typically gray black and kind of a cinnamon buff color. Um, they are an intermediate size between a coyote and a gray wolf, run about 50 to 80 pounds with males typically being larger than females. They have long legs, tall ears, and cylindrical body shapes. And I can tell you that there is nothing cuter on this earth than a red wolf pup when they have a little bit of age and those ears are just standing up tall on those little bodies. They are the most adorable things on the face of this earth. As we continue on, in 1984, the red wolf recovery plan was revised, updated, and approved. The red wolf was also incorporated into the AZA's Species Survival Plan, which is now called SAFE, and SAFE stands for Saving Animals from Extinction. It was during 1984 that the Prudential Insurance Company donated the property we now know as Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge to the service, and this becomes an important point as the Red Wolf story continues. So now let me get back to those original animals. Of the 43 original animals, only 14 were red wolves. And those 14 are the founders of the program as we know today. Imagine the challenge of starting and sustaining a population with only 14 founders. Maintaining the genetics of the founders is one of the goals of the captive program. But at a later episode, I will talk a little further about the goals and objectives of the SAFE program. It's interesting. And I have someone that I hope is gonna be able to come on and give a little more background and talk more day to day about how the SAFE program does that. So now let me get back to that wild population. In 1980, the last red wolves were removed from the wild and dis dis declared extinct. Unique genetic alleles found by Farrell et al. in the red wolf support the conclusion that the red wolf is a distinct species. So it's interesting that almost from the very beginning, species was in question about the red wolf. And I dare to say that there are some people that still question that. I know in my time in this position, that is 
probably when I talk to people, one of the first, maybe second things that someone says behind, they're eating all the deer, they're not a real, they're not a real wolf, they're a mutt, they're a hybrid, whatever word that they choose to, to use. So it's very interesting that that narrative is still alive today. And there are some that still believe that the red wolf is, is just a hybrid between a gray wolf and coyote. I always thought that was very interesting because if that were true, even back in its early ancestry, why don't we have red wolves running around in the western part of our country where gray wolves and coyotes have been living together for a really long time? One really interesting thing happened in 2019, the National Academic Sciences, Engineering and Medicine finalized a study saying that the red wolf was a unique species. And this study came about because the, the Fish and Wildlife was tasked from Congress to answer the taxonomic question of whether the red wolf and the Mexican gray wolf are a unique species. And the answer is they are. You know, this study may not silence critics, but it confirms the fact that the red wolf is a unique species and worthy of recovery effort. Today, that current population in the wild is 15. If you travel to Northeastern North Carolina and you go to Alligator River or Pocosin Lakes National Wildlife Refuge, you will be able to identify these animals because they wear an orange tracking collar if you see a canid with either a whitish or a black, then that's one of the sterilized coyotes. The safe population is at about 278. Um, there have been some litters born that are not included in that number, but this is the highest population of the safe participants that I have seen since I've been here in 18 years. So very, very cool. They're definitely definitely doing something right and i'm getting ready to in the next couple weeks to attend the annual safe meeting um, it's actually going to be in conjunction with the mexican the u.s fish and wildlife mexican gray wolf program and i'm looking forward to meeting people that do what i do that are active in education and conservation of the mexican gray wolf and i imagine there'll be a lot of conversations between the field staff about different techniques and strategies that you, they use. So I'm very excited about that. So I'm gonna leave the Red Wolf story here from now. Um, my next podcast, I'm gonna bring in someone that's been part of the SAFE program for a while and I'm really, really excited. I feel like the history that I provided you today are the high notes, but I hope that you will continue to stay engaged and inspired to read more about the Red Wolf. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Red Wolf Recovery Program has a great website. Our website is a great website. Um, I encourage you to do your education. Get out there and read and learn as much as you can. I did want to mention that as I prepared for this episode, there is a book that I go to an awful lot when I need some questions answered about wolves in general. And that is a book um, by L. David Meech and Luigi Boitano. And the title is Wolves, Behavior, Ecology, and Conservation. And I also used information from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. 
our next podcast, I'm really excited. We're going to have our very first special guest. When I mentioned that I was going to be doing these podcasts, Tish was the first one. She was so excited, raised her hand and said, I want to be on, I want to be on, I want to be on. So next week, I'm going to have the honor and, and privilege to introduce you to Tish Galmard, who is from the Reflection Riding in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, uh, everybody's going to be so, uh, you're just going to love Tish. She's amazing. She is passionate about the Red Wolf, and I know that you will enjoy our conversation. Just so you know, I tasked her with coming up with five questions and not to tell me the answers so that when I ask her the questions, I don't know the answers any more than you guys will until she says them. And she's excited. I'm excited. So I hope that you will continue to listen. And I thank you for listening. And until next time, keep howling.